Well, good morning. I'm Pastor Brandon. I encourage you to keep your Bible open to, to John 15 and 16 as we uh, continue working our way through chapters 13 to 17 this fall. Uh, we've seen so far through this section how Jesus is preparing his disciples for his upcoming departure. Uh, he has spent uh, the last several years uh, with them on this earth, loving them, uh, teaching them, showing them his signs. And now as his departure uh, nears, draws near, he is loving them to the end by preparing them for what's to come, for his crucifixion, uh, for his resurrection, for his ascension and return to his Father in heaven, and for the sending of the Holy Spirit who is going to come in his place. Because as we've noted uh, several times in this section of John's gospel, the mission of Jesus does not end with the earthly ministry of Jesus. It carries on through his disciples whom he sends into this world. And so that's why it's so important that his disciples uh, rest in his love and learn to show his love to one another in chapter 13. Uh, that's why his disciples must be utterly convinced that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and learn to lean on the Holy Spirit who is present with them even as Jesus departs, chapter 14. Uh, that's why what we saw last week in, in chapter 15, the call to abide in Christ, to make our home in Him and remain in Him even as we let His Word abide in us. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. But what do we do when our union with Christ makes us enemies of the world around us? When abiding in Christ alienates us from the world, when loving one another as Jesus has loved us causes the world to hate us even as they hated our Lord, what do we do when following Jesus means facing the world's hostility? Do we just give in and surrender? Do we fall away from the Lord and just fall in with the world around uh, do we give up and run away, just kind of withdraw from the world and retreat and maybe find our own little safe place to live out our faith? Do we strike back and retaliate, fight fire with fire? Or do we hold fast to Christ in faithful witness, joyfully sharing in the sufferings of our Lord amid the world's opposition? That is the subject that Jesus turns to now in his, as he prepares his disciples uh, for his departure. He does so by urging them not to be surprised by the world's opposition or hostility, but to hold fast to him in faithful witness. And, and that's our main point from this passage this morning and, and supplies kind of the two points that we'll be uh, looking at as we work through it, don't be surprised by the world's hostility, but hold fast to Christ in faithful witness. Don't be surprised by the world's hostility, but hold fast to Christ in faithful witness. And we'll start with the first half of that sentence. Don't be surprised by the world's hostility. And Jesus gives us the basic theme of our passage right at the beginning in verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. We like to think, you know, as Keith mentioned earlier, that 
that the Christian life is kind of going from, from good to better. It's just upward mobility, you know, that, that's what we presume. And if things go wrong, then either we're doing something wrong or the gospel's not working. We don't know what. But, but Jesus is telling his disciples here, don't be caught off guard when what you endure from the world hurts and, and is painful when you find yourself opposed and experiencing the hatred and hostility of the world. Now, when Jesus says the world here, when he's talking about the world, he's talking about the fallen world that we live in, the, the created order as it is operating in rebellion against God. And when he talks about hatred, he's not using that in a watered-down sense of the term. He's talking about hostility and aggression toward him and, and toward his followers, the kind of hostility and aggression that he illustrates in the beginning of chapter 16 is, you know, being kicked out of the synagogues and, and being, you know, religious persecution and violent opposition. That's the kind of stuff he's talking about here. Not fun, right? Not the kind of stuff we expect to be part of following Jesus. And yet, his point here is that we shouldn't be surprised when it happens. We shouldn't be surprised or taken off guard. Persecution is a normal result of love and loyalty for Jesus. Now, sometimes Christians can kind of revel in this idea. Uh, we can kind of develop a sort of martyr complex where we find our identity in being mistreated by the world, such that we almost go so far as to seek it out or to invite it um, we, we swat the bee's nest for Jesus. Uh, persecution becomes the filter through which we interpret every difficulty or every disagreement or opposition we encounter, even if it has nothing to do with our faith. I've told this story before of a young man that I was mentoring when he was in high school, and he would come to me, and he was just burdened by the persecution he was experiencing from his teachers because of his faith. And after a little conversation, turns out, no, they're just writing him because he wasn't turning his homework in. It had nothing to do with following Jesus, right? Not every hardship we encounter in this world is an unbelieving world picking at God's people. And yet, we are foolish to think that none of the hardships that we come, none of the hardships that we face come from the world's opposition. We're foolish to think that the world's opposition to Christ never creates hostility, uh, the hostility that we encounter. I mean, you, you can see it in the early church. I mean, you can see it in the Gospels themselves and in Acts. But even, even the historians of ancient Rome, of the Roman Empire, recount in their own histories how, how quote, an immense multitude of Christians were killed under Emperor Nero. That wasn't a matter of debate. That was public record for Rome in the first few decades, the first century. You can see it throughout church history as well. I mean, how many times have Christians been either marginalized or suppressed or exiled from their homeland or even killed because of their allegiance to Christ? You can see it around the globe today. There are nations in which following Jesus is quite literally risking your life. That if you are found out, that could be the end. 
right? And, and by God's grace, though, we don't experience opposition to that degree in America. I mean, it doesn't mean we don't experience the, Lord, the, the world's hostility here as well. I mean, some of us here can tell stories of friendships lost, of, of families divided, of jobs threatened or, or reputations slandered, not because we did anything wrong, but because of our allegiance to Christ, because we wouldn't do what the world told us we had to do. And as our culture drifts further from Christ, many more of us will have stories like that to share. In fact, Jesus gives his followers several reasons of why they should not be surprised or taken off guard when they encounter the world's hostility. Uh, The first one, Jesus is our precedent. He's our precedent. It happened to him first. Verse 18 again. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And and the reason that the world hated Jesus was not because he was obnoxious or disagreeable, but because he was the promised king who exposed their sinful rebellion and their desperate need for a savior, a savior that they did not always actually want. Jesus said earlier back in chapter 3, and this is the judgment, that light has come into the world And the people loved darkness rather than light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. He says something similar in chapter 7, verse 7. The world hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. The world hates. The, the evil and rebellion and sin and darkness of this world is exposed by the presence of Christ, and it hates him for it, not because he's like the tattletale in the classroom, right, but because his very existence is a testimony to them that they are not the center of the universe, that there is a God who made them, who rules them, who sent his son to save them, and that they will stand before him in the end. And and that fact rouses their anger toward Jesus because it threatens the sin and darkness they're so committed to. They're so committed to. And, And our allegiance to Jesus today has the exact same effect. It has the exact same effect on a world that is comfortable in its sin, that doesn't want anything to mess up the status quo Therefore, Jesus is a threat to me being the king of my own world. And so, therefore, we'll face that same opposition that Jesus faced, which leads to the second reason uh, that, that Jesus gives in verse 19, that Jesus makes us his people. We no longer belong to the world. We no longer belong to the world. Verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I've chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. We no longer belong to the world. And and it's critical to recognize what's implied by his statements here, Jesus' statements here. The fact that we once belonged to this world, the world that he is describing, apart from Christ, that is our reality. 
right? Apart from Christ, we are dead in our sins. As Paul describes it, we're alienated and hostile in mind and doing evil deeds. But as we have seen throughout John's gospel, when we trust in Christ, through faith in him, we find forgiveness for that sin. We find new life by his spirit. We are rescued from the darkness and we are raised with Christ to eternal life which means that even though we live out our days in this world, we don't belong to it. We've been rescued from it. Our citizenship is in heaven. That's our home, which makes us strangers and exiles in this world. And what do people tend to do with strangers who don't share their loyalties and allegiances? If you just look at culture and history, we persecute them. We distrust them. We, we see them as a threat to be dealt with or managed. That's what the world does to those who belong to Jesus. They will treat us as they've treated our Savior. And that's the third reason that Jesus gives here, that Jesus is our pattern. Jesus is our pattern. The world will treat us as it treated him. Verse 20, remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So well, this is a, clearly, as Jesus said, remember what I said. This is not the first time he's used this proverb with his disciples. Of, a servant is not greater than his master. The first time he used it was back in chapter 13, where he was making the point that, that if he has loved his disciples in such a self-giving way as to wash their feet, who are they to think that they don't have to do the same thing, right? A servant's not greater than his master. Here he applies the same proverb to enduring the world's opposition. If Jesus is treated with this kind of hostility by the world around him, who are we to think that as his servants that we're going to fare any better? Indeed, you know, by the time John completed his gospel, much of Christ's warning here had already come to bear. You know, in Acts 7, we see Stephen's martyrdom for his faith. In Acts 12, we see James killed for his faith. John, in fact, is, is pretty much the only one of the apostles who did not suffer a martyr's death. The first readers of this book knew that Jesus was telling the truth that the world would do to his followers the same thing it did to their master. Through their union with Christ and their participation in his mission, Jesus is preparing them for what is to come, that they're going to experience the same thing he experienced in his earthly, mystery, in his earthly ministry. They will share in his sufferings as faithful witnesses. There will be some who keep his word, keep their words, even as they kept Jesus' word. There will be some who turn to Christ. And there will be many who persecute them because that's what they did to Jesus. They persecuted him. Don't be surprised by the world's hostility. Because underneath the world's hostility to Christians is ultimately a hostility toward God. That's the root of the hostility that, that Jesus is warning them about. That's what he's going to clarify in verses 21 to 25. He says, all these things they will do to you on account of my name, 
because they do not know the one who sent me. This is the heart of whatever unjust hostility or opposition that followers of Jesus might experience in this life. It is ultimately an opposition to Jesus and an ignorance of the God who sent him. Now, again, that doesn't mean that every criticism or opposition to a Christian is unjust. Sometimes we say and do stupid and sinful things, right? We don't always live out the faith that we are claiming to follow. And when that happens, like, there's no persecution in being called out for hypocrisy, right? But when we are called out, not because we're doing something stupid or sinful, but because we're simply following Jesus, the root of that is ultimately a hostility to Jesus himself. That's, that's the, where it comes from, which kind of sounds like a startling accusation that unjust hostility uh, toward Christians is really hostility toward Christ, and that rejecting Jesus is really rejecting God. I mean, that was no doubt a startling message to uh, the, the first century Jews who, who we've seen in this book as Jesus is preaching to them, the covenant people of God who are all of a sudden being told, if you do not follow the Son, you don't actually know the Father. And yet that has been the message of John's gospel, that in Jesus, the God of Israel is doing He is revealing himself in a new and a climactic way, making himself known truly in a a fulfillment of his whole plan of redemption, such that John can say back in chapter 1, verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, Jesus, he has made him known. You cannot know God if you do not know the Son. To accept Jesus is to accept the Father. He tells us that back in chapter 13, verse 20, which also means then to reject Jesus is to reject the Father, which is what he says right here in verse 23, whoever hates me hates my Father also. There is no life with God apart from Jesus Christ. And and those who were privileged enough to see and observe and, and, and hear Jesus in his earthly ministry and yet still reject him, they stand particularly without excuse. That's Jesus' point in verses 22 to 24. He's not saying here uh, that there's no such thing as guilt without witnessing Jesus' works and words firsthand. Israel and all nations were all guilty way before Jesus showed up. Like you can see that throughout Scripture. Rather, what Jesus is saying is that there is a particular sin in having such a clear revelation of the truth of God and refusing it and rejecting it. As one author puts it, rejection of Jesus' words and works is thus the rejection of the clearest light, the fullest revelation, and therefore it incurs the most central deep-stained guilt. There's a particular, uh, they're particularly without excuse. And yet, in God's providence, not even that rejection is a surprise to God. Just as Jesus doesn't want us to be surprised when we face the world's opposition, it's not like it caught him off guard either. In fact, his reception of, of that hostility 
that is, is in reality, it's part of Christ fulfilling ancient Israel's story and scriptures. It's part of him taking up the story of Israel and, and being the completion of it as their true and promised king. This is what he's alluding to in verse 25. This whole hostility he encounters, it's according to God's scripture. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. All of this is happening for a reason. And, and Jesus quotes here, uh, he's either quoting Psalm 35 or Psalm 69. That phrase, they hated me without cause, shows up in both of those psalms. But both of those psalms are laments of David, ancient Israel's king, the preeminent king. And both of them are laments about the unjust treatment of Israel's king, a king who often represented his people. And so what Jesus is doing here as as the true and promised king of Israel and as true Israel himself, like the fulfillment of all that Israel was to be and to do, the true vine where Israel's vineyard was producing rotten grapes, as that embodiment of all of Israel and, and Israel's king, Jesus takes up that story of the world's hostility and hatred and makes it his own. As he says in Psalm 69, the reproaches of those who reproached you have fallen upon me. He makes their hostility, their experience of hostility, his experience of hostility, that he might bear it in their place. And when you stop and think about it, there is a long and troubled history of senseless aggression toward God's covenant people, Israel. I mean, you look at Pharaoh's attempted genocide in Exodus. Or you look at Haman's attempted genocide in Esther. Or you look at examples throughout modern history, the Nazi regime of the 1900s, the horrors happening uh, to Israel, in Israel right now at the hands of Hamas. Each of these has a, has a common thread of this senseless hostility. And you know, whatever one might think of Israel's foreign policy with Gaza right now, you, you take an organization like Hamas whose founding chartered documents include the annihilation of a nation state and the murder of Jews, that's why it exists, that is unmistakably evil. That kind of hostility is wrong in every way. And yet even that finds its answer somehow in Jesus. It is ultimately upon Jesus and upon his cross that the world's hostility against God and his people finds both its gravest expression and its ultimate answer. He bore it in our place. He is the one who bears the hatred of the world against God and his people, including the hatred of his own people when they join the world in rejecting him, as we see in John's gospel. He is the fulfillment of ancient Israel, and he is the hope of modern Israel and Palestine and any group or people group or individual suffocating in the darkness and evil of this world. And, and when we are united with the one upon whom the reproaches of the world has fallen, we should not be shocked when they splash onto us as well, when we share in his sufferings, when we taste the hostility that he tasted in our place. Don't be surprised by the world's hostility. 
So what should we do instead? That brings us to the second point, second part of our sentence, hold fast to Christ in faithful witness. Don't be surprised by the world's hostility, but hold fast to Christ in faithful witness. Surviving hostility is not simply a matter of of being unsurprised, but of being well-prepared. That's kind of the whole point of not being surprised, so that we know not only what to expect, but what to do when it happens. And, and so in, in 15.26 to 16.4, Jesus is calling them not, not to turn away, not to run away, not to fight back, not to give in, but to hold fast, to hold fast in faithful witness that is unhindered, unflinching, and unresentful. Unhindered, unflinching, and unresentful. And we see that emphasis on bearing witness as the primary response. We see that in verses 26 to 27. Just as the Spirit is going to bear witness, so His people will continue to bear witness. That is their mission, and that is our mission today, to bear witness to Jesus and His kingdom despite the world's hatred. But we also see what it's going to take for that witness to actually be true and faithful. And first, he calls us to an unhindered witness, an unhindered witness that depends not on us, on our weakness and limitations, but on the presence and power of the Holy Spirit whom he gives us. You know, it's hard uh, for most of us, but I'll just speak for myself now. It's hard for me to talk about Jesus with somebody on a good day. Like, it's easy to stand up here and do it for some reason, but when I'm like in the, in the barber chair or on the sideline at the soccer field, I don't exactly always take every opportunity the Lord gives me. You know, sometimes I'm more worried about what they'll think of me or, or how they'll respond, and so I'm not actively sharing Jesus the way I ought. Now, and that's, with a, that's on a good day. That's with somebody we're having a pleasant conversation about the weather, right? Someone who's openly hostile to God and Christianity, I'm basically useless, right? Left to myself, I'm basically useless. But the point here is that we're not left to ourselves. We're not left to ourselves. Jesus is not asking us to carry out a mission on our own He is giving them the Holy Spirit. That is his first answer to the hostility that we can expect to face. Verse 26, but when the helper comes, the advocate, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning." Now, this is, this is now the third time that, that Jesus has mentioned this promised coming of the Holy Spirit, the advocate that he's going to send. And we're actually going to spend a lot more time next week uh, in the next passage looking at the specific ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus is going to talk about uh, in the next section. But, but the emphasis here is on the Spirit's witness and the church's witness, and how the one depends on the other. That we're not sent into the world to do this on our own, but to depend on the Spirit. If we're doing this on our own, we will be hindered by our own weakness and limitations. I'm not creative enough or courageous enough to make Christ known on my own. I need 
the very God of heaven who dwells within me to do that heavy lifting, right? And that's what he's promised here. That's why, you know, at the end of Luke's gospel, as Jesus is commissioning his disciples to go out into the world, he says, you know, go make disciples, but wait just a little bit. Wait until you receive power from on high when the Holy Spirit is given at Pentecost. They cannot carry out their mission without the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. The same thing is true here in our passage. We we need an unhindered witness, a witness where we don't get in the way, but but that the Spirit of God is the one who gives us the strength to make Christ known. Second, he calls us to an unflinching witness, an unflinching witness that we would remain faithful to Jesus. Surviving hostility is hard, uh, which is why hostility is so common, because it's often very effective, right? I mean, the bully wouldn't keep stealing lunch money and shaming people if it didn't usually work. Peer pressure wouldn't be so common uh, if it wasn't so easy to get somebody who, to do something they don't want to do and, and, and but to make it so that they do it. Like, hostility works in our broken world. And, and so, therefore, if the world can persuade Christians to downplay Christ, if they can pressure Christians to disregard His Word or or cause enough pain and disruption that we begin to question, is this actually worth it? Or, or, or to just kind of keep it under wraps. Don't, don't stir things up. Don't make a mess of it all. That we begin to censor ourselves and silence our message. You better believe they're going to pile it on. We need a witness that is not only unhindered by our own limitations, but unflinching in the face of of threats and opposition. And that, that is what Jesus is aiming for by telling his disciples what's to come. He says in verse 16, uh, in chapter 16, verse 1, I've said all these things to keep you from falling away. He doesn't want them to get, off ca- get caught off guard. He doesn't want them to give in, to stop short, to turn back. He wants them to persevere in faithful witness that's unflinching before the threats of the world. And that's hard. I mean, that's hard for anybody to do. But, but I think what helps, what helps most in that situation is, is when we recognize that, that we're being mistreated by the world, not because of what we've done, but because we belong to Jesus. In that instance, if we know that we're being mistreated on His account because of His name, if, if we know that the pain and hostility we encounter is, is actually an opportunity to become like Jesus, to share in his sufferings, to, to know him more intimately and become more like him, that changes the way that I respond to hostility, doesn't it? Like, if, if I think that following Jesus means going from good to better, and, that, and anything other than that is a disruption in the normal path, then I'm going to flee hostility wherever I find it. But if, if following Jesus is actually a matter of dying and then being raised with Christ, if, it, if it's a matter of crucifixion first and then life, of shame first and then glory, 
Well, all of a sudden, the hostility that I encounter is is not a threat to be avoided or a, a score that I need to settle. It's an invitation into the heart of Jesus. It is to know our Savior and share in His sufferings in, the way, in, a, in a way that, that draws us closer into His heart, that makes us more and more like Him. The Apostle Peter describes it this way in, in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? In other words, there's no reward for receiving a punishment that you actually deserved, right? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And what does that example look like? He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was insulted, he didn't throw it back. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Better take me off this cross or else. No, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. What makes an unflinching witness to Christ possible in in the face of hostility is not only a, a dependence on the Spirit, but a recognition that whatever injury we incur on account of Christ is an opportunity to share in his sufferings to become like Him, to know Him more deeply, and to show His self-giving love to the world. Which also then frees us for the third aspect of the kind of witness Jesus calls us to, and that is an unresentful witness. An unresentful witness. How difficult would it be to hold out the gospel of Jesus to someone while still holding on to a grudge that you have against them. Like, think about those two things at the same time. How, how easy it, it, is it for that to coexist? Pretty near impossible, I think, if we're being honest. When we recognize that the world into which Jesus is sending his disciples to make him known is the same world that's actually going to mistreat them and... and, and seek to harm them. He says in 16.2, they're going to kick them out of the synagogues. They're even going to see their violent opposition as doing God's work, an act of worship to God to kill the apostles. That same world that he's sending them into, those are the people they're to proclaim Jesus to. How can you hold out the gospel to someone before whom you hold a grudge on them? When we recognize that, that that we're supposed to show our love, it shows the necessity of an unresentful witness. You cannot hold out the gospel while continuing to hold a grudge. Rather, as Jesus says in, in Matthew's gospel, we're called to love our enemies. That is so countercultural. Everything in our fallen hearts and everything in the world around us says, love your friends, hate your enemies, right? 
Jesus says the opposite. Well, he doesn't say, he says, love your friends, yes. But also love your enemies, right? Pray for those who persecute you. That is so mind-blowing and so unique to the gospel of Jesus. And yet so hard to do if we see our union with Jesus as some sort of like privileged status that these poor fellows over here, well, they just haven't, they didn't figure God out. We think we're special because we've, we, we know Jesus and they don't. It, or, or we look down on them because they've mistreated us and they need to get what's coming. If that's our posture toward the unbelieving world, one, it betrays a lack of knowledge of the gospel. We didn't choose the Lord. He tells us, chapter 15, you didn't choose me, I chose you and, and, to go, and appointed you to go and bear much fruit. The gospel is by grace. We have no boast before our Lord. And the reason that they oppose Jesus and oppose us, he tells us in verse 3, 16, 3, it's because they don't know him. They don't know him. They don't know the Son. They don't know the Father. And so think of what Jesus prayed from the cross for those who put him there. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. If our heart is not soft to the world, even the world that would use us and take advantage of us or reject us and get rid of us, if our heart is not soft to that world, we will not hold out the gospel of Jesus to them. If we do not show the same grace to them that Christ has shown to us in our hostility, right? Because again, we were there. We were there. And there's nothing that we did to change that. It was what Christ has done by his mercy. It's the same grace that the world around us, around us so desperately needs. And so if we hold against others the hostility that we endure, how can we ever hold out the gospel of grace? But if Christ loved us while we were still enemies, if his blood is sufficient not only to cover our sins, but also the sin that others commit against us, then we can respond to hostility with an unresentful witness. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Help them see Jesus. We can freely love those who have hurt us or seek to hurt us, those who may never actually love us in return. We can freely love them with the same love that we've received despite our hostility, the love of Jesus, our gracious Savior. What do we do when the world, when our union with Christ makes us enemies with the world? When, we, when following Jesus means facing the world's hostility. Don't be surprised by the world's hostility, but hold fast to Christ in faithful witness, unhindered, unflinching, unresentful, full of grace. The Apostle Peter summarizes it so beautifully. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as if something strange were happening. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we confess 
that this is a hard word. It's a hard word because nobody, not, there's not a single one of us who, who loves to endure hostility. It's a hard word that calls us to offer grace and forgiveness to those who are hostile toward us. And yet it is a word that flows from your heart and that points us and and tethers us to your cross. Lord, help us follow the pattern of the cross as we love the world around us, even when it treats us as enemies. Give us the grace we need to hold fast to you. In Jesus' name.